today we're going to begin speaking about the Mahabharata. Uh, Maha means great. It's uh, Latin magna. And Bharata. Uh, there was a great king named Bharata. Uh, who, and so India in that sense is known as the land of the Bharatas. So we're going to talk first of all very briefly about the importance of the Mahabharata and perhaps the simplest thing you could say about the importance of this text in India is that uh, India took its name, in a sense, from this Bharata. Because in Indian languages, India is called Bharata. In fact, if you ever get to see an Indian postage stamp, it'll say India in Roman letters, but then in the Devanagari script, it'll say Bharata. So Bharata is basically the name of India in Indian languages, which tells you something about the importance the importance of the text. Uh, so Maha, the great Bharata. Now, here's a few quotes. Uh, the most important academic translation of the Mahabharata was done by a scholar who passed away uh, named uh, Van Butenen, J.B. Van Butenen, from the University of Chicago. He started this translation project, and it's still going on. It's being done by other scholars. So that's the main translation project of the Mahabharata into English. And uh, so here's some quotes from his introduction to the Mahabharata. And he was a recognized authority specialist in it. More than any other text in Indian civilization, the great epic has been the storehouse of ancient lore. It's kind of like the great Hindu encyclopedia or storehouse. Countless are the single references to epic material in the literature. In other words, Basically, all Indian music, dance, uh, theater, and poetry, and so on. Uh, not literally everything, but I mean, throughout history, it refers back to the Mahabharata, Krishna, Arjuna, the battle of Kurukshetra. The basic story is just in the Indian DNA, you could say. It's just really like these are practically the main historical reference points for the culture. Such references show how familiar the Indian was with the events and the heroes of the epic, so familiar that they, in fact, became proverbial. Indian art equally shows the pervasive influence of the epic. And then in the Mahabharata is the Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita, doubtless formed within the epic, has become the most important single text of Hindu religion. Most important single text. The Bhagavad Gita is inside the Mahabharata. The book of the twelfth book, the Book of Peace, which in Sanskrit is Shanti Parva, contains a large number of philosophical chapters that are among the oldest documents for more or less systematic Hindu thought. So this is these are some of the oldest texts in India for uh, Hindu philosophy, Indian philosophy. It pervades Indian art. It gave its name to the country. It's uh, so it's hard to exaggerate the importance of the Mahabharata. Of course, we talked about the Ramayana in a similar vein. And I don't, I don't want to you know, put them to compete against each other. But, but if anything, the Mahabharata is it's just of well, supreme importance. So likewise, the history of Indian law, and the ancient word for law is dharma. The history of in Indian law... Uh, 
cannot be properly understood without the epic, the Mahabharata. So in, in India, if you just say the, the epic, it means the Mahabharata. <laughs> so to understand Indian law, uh, the epic, where the law is the greatest single concern. Now, I also want to give you some quotes from the critical edition of the text. And I have to explain what the critical edition it doesn't mean the edition which criticizes it. It means that um, the Mahabharata, I'm going to talk more in detail about this. The Mahabharata was originally an oral tradition before there was writing in India. It was an oral tradition. And uh, in the, around the turn of the century, a scholar named Winternitz, which we mentioned earlier, you probably forgot, but I mentioned him in regard to the antiquity of the Rig Veda, the Indo-European question. Winternitz was a leading scholar in that. He kept pushing, like, we need a critical edition of the Mahabharata. What that means is you take all the existing manuscripts in the original languages and you collate them, you put them together, and you try to figure out what's the oldest one. Can we work our way back through rational, objective, scholarly principles to an oldest, original Mahabharata? And in this enterprise, they use the term Ur, the German word Ur, original, the, isn't it? The original Mahabharata. So I'll tell you a little later what the result was. Anyway, basically, the, the best scholars in, in the world, the Sanskrit scholars, I should say, in India and Europe and America got together, and they all worked together to somehow bring this huge, sprawling manuscript tradition together and sort it out and try to do what they had done for Greek and Roman literature. They were using the example and the methodology of uh, classical studies, where they could actually kind of figure out what's the oldest version of, say, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, or the uh, Aeneid by Virgil, and so on. So they said, let's do that with this ancient text. So the first volume was done by a very prominent uh, Sanskritist from India uh, named Vishnu Suttankar. And uh, he, the first volume of this critical edition, which is huge, was published in 1933. And he wrote a very lengthy scholarly introduction to that critical edition, uh, which is sort of a, it's a very important document in terms of Mahabharata studies. It's called the uh, Prolegomena, which is a fancy way of saying introduction. And uh, so here are some quotes from that Prolegomena, which is the Sanskrit edition of the text, the one that was used by Van Buten to translate it. It's sort of, it's a Sanskrit text that scholars always use. It's critical edition. So, he said, um, the reasons which have induced Sanskritists, both here and here, in, in India and abroad, to undertake this gigantic enterprise are easy to understand. The preeminent importance, the preeminent importance of the epic is universally acknowledged. So that's from Vishnu Sutanka. So, when they finally jumped into this job, they, they found, oh my God. Uh, so I'll tell you why, what happened when they jumped into this task. First of all, uh, they found throughout India 58 different versions of the Mahabharata. Now when I say different versions, I don't mean they have different endings and different characters. It's basically the same book, but there are differences. For example, some texts will contain a few verses, other texts don't have even chapters that other texts don't have, or they will use synonyms in a, let's say in a particular verse, one Sanskrit, let's say one text will say 
Eva, which means indeed or only. Another text may say, say something else like the Ta or Eva. In other words, little synonyms. And, and sometimes they're just different versions of the same story. And so there's all kinds of different variations. But there are basically 58 different identifiable versions. And those 58 versions, uh, in a sense, are in 11 different manuscript traditions. What I mean by that is there is a... Here are the 11. There, there are Kashmiri, Kashmiri manuscripts from Kashmir. They not only produced sweaters, they also produced uh, recensions of Mahavarta. So, so there's a whole group of manuscripts that came from Kashmir, from Nepal, from Nepal, from uh, Mithila, which is uh, sort of near the land where Buddha was born, sort of northeast India, from Bengal. There are four different groups of manuscripts in Devanagari. Devanagari is the, uh, the most prominent script, alphabet, which is used for Sanskrit. And, uh, for example, on algebra, you've probably seen it. It's also used by, uh, in Hindi. This is, uh, this is what it looks like. Just to give you an example. Uh, Mahabharata. So that's, that's the Devanagari script. You can read that, can't you? That's the, that's, the, uh, that's the Mahabharata script. I'm sorry, that's the Devanagari script. And there are four different manuscript traditions in Devanagari. Then Telugu, which is from the state of uh, the, the southeastern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh, Telugu. Uh, Granta, which is sort of an archaic southern script. So, and Malayalam from uh, Kerala southwestern India. So 11 different groups of manuscripts, and in each of these 11 groups, there are various different versions, so altogether 58 versions. So this is what they started with, in trying to figure out what's the original text of the Mahabharata, like where did it really come from? They started with that, and uh, this is what Van Boynton says in the introduction to his translation of it. He says, it is clear that Neither a single author nor a single date can be assigned to the great epic. Again, it's just called the great epic. Now, the quote-unquote mythological author is Vyasa. Vyasa was said to have divided the Vedas and composed the Mahabharata. There's a very popular Hindu story mentioned by Rodriguez that uh, Vyasa dictated the Mahabharata and Ganesh Ganapati, Ganesh, uh, actually wrote it. And it's also said that sometimes uh, Vyas basically needed to catch his breath or think about something. So he would dictate a very difficult verse and Ganesh had to struggle with it. So while Ganesh was trying to figure it out, he would catch his breath and you know, have a lemonade or something. But what Professor Rodriguez doesn't mention is that this very popular story is not mentioned in the Mahabharata. So, whether this really happened or not is, of course, uh, doubtful. It's not mentioned in the Mahabharata, but it is a very popular Hindu story about the Mahabharata. Where did it come from? Uh, that's a very good question. Which I'm not prepared to answer at this point. So, uh, we'll talk more about the author and so on. So, where did the Mahabharata... But as far as the historicity of the Mahabharata, and as far as the historicity of the characters, because... As I've said so many times, this is itihasa, this is a historical genre. Uh, they all write, actually I should have written this on the board, but um, very, very quickly. The, uh, give you a little timeline, very quickly. 
you have Vyas, who's the uh, considered to be the author. And then and then Vyas is uh, Vyas actually begot three sons, one of them is Pandu, the great king Pandu. Pandu begot five sons who are called the Pandavas. They include Arjuna, who spoke with Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, Krishna the great heroes. So then for Pandu of the Pandavas. The Pandavas had a son named Abhimanyu, who was killed in a great battle toward the end of Mahabharata. Abhimanyu had one surviving son who was still actually in the womb of his mother and was saved by Krishna in the womb of his mother. And that surviving son was Parikshi, who was uh, one of the great kings of Indian history. And his son is named Jananejaya. The reason I wrote this is because uh, all these generations. It is actually, whoops, sorry, John, uh, It is actually this King Janame Jaya who hears the Mahabharata from a great sage named Vaishampayana, who is a disciple of Vyas. So Vyas has a disciple named Vaishampayana, and Vyas teaches the Mahabharata to Vaishampayana and recites it to him. And then Vaishampayana, these sages lived for a very long time. These are great yogis, great sages. They lived for long periods of time. And Vyasa's disciple, Vaishampayana, teaches the Mahabharata to Janamejaya. So when the, when the Mahabharata begins, it's, uh, well, it begins with even a, another frame going down, but, but really it's Janamejaya speaking to, I'm sorry, uh, Vaishampayana speaking to Janamejaya. So Janamejaya, hearing about this great story of the Pandavas, Arjuna and Krishna, is hearing the story of his great-grandfathers. So he's hearing about his own relatives. Now what's interesting is that Janamejaya uh, apparently is a historical character. He's mentioned in the Shatapata Brahmana. And uh, the Atarva Veda, the fourth Veda, mentions that Parikshi is actually still living. So the Atarva Veda, there are verses in the Atarva Veda that speak about Parikshi still being there. And uh, it also mentions that his other portions say that uh, his Parikshit's descend descendants, were called the Parikshitas, the descendants of Parikshit, uh, are now, have, have now vanished. I'm, I'm sorry, what I just said is incoherent. Uh, I'm sorry, the Brihad Aranya Upanishad. The Tarva Veda mentions Parikshit. The Brihad Aranya Upanishad, the oldest Upanishad, talks about or remembers, and, and again, the Brihad Aranya Upanishad is maybe up to 3,000 years old at least, and it talks about the Parikshita, the, the dynasty coming from Parikshit as being a vanished dynasty. So you have a manuscript, 3,000 years old, 2,800 years old, Brihadaranya Kupanishad, remembering this ancient dynasty coming from Parikshit, which is now vanished on the earth. So, these are, so there's all kinds of historical references, Shatapata Brahmana, Tarva Veda, Chandogya Upanishad. Some of the oldest Vedic literature talk about these characters. And of course, these people are the descendants, the close descendants of the people that directly participated in the Mahabharata events. And so this is, has always been known as history, and uh, it looks like history. I mean, not, not every detail, but something like this happened. Now, uh, problem. 
So, what, well, first of all, before I get into the problems, the fun part, the geography, where did this take place? Uh, in India. But it took place, uh, it's centered in north central India. Actually, what is now Delhi or New Delhi, which is on the Jamuna River. I could uh, make some space for myself here and uh, do my little map of India. Anyway, uh, here's Delhi. Let's say this is Delhi. I mean, this is very roughly. Delhi should be a little farther north. This is Delhi. And uh, now in ancient times, Delhi, which is Delhi's on the Jamuna River, a river which comes down from the Himalayan mountains, and it, uh, eventually, wait, this is not very accurate, it goes in, it, it merges with the Ganges River in Allahabad, and then eventually goes into the Bay of Bengal. So on the Jamuna River was, which is now in Delhi, uh, Delhi's just west of the Jamuna River. Uh, if you go, there's a city called Meerut, M-E-R-U-T, and so right around this area was a city called Hastinapur, which used to be in the Ganges before it shifted its course, and that's the center of the Mahabharata. Hastinapur is the imperial capital, the great Kuru dynasty. And so this is taking place in north central India, but it involves all of India really because uh, People, I mean, main characters in the story like Shakuni or Gandhari, is, I mean, we'll talk about that later, but they come from Afghanistan, Kandahar, as it's now called. Back then it's called Gandhara. So therefore she's called Gandhari, the princess from Kandahar. So people are coming back from Afghanistan. There are other people coming all the way, you know, here from Bangladesh. And uh, people in the Mahabharata, they travel up into the Himalayan mountains. They go all the way to Gujarat here, that's sort of the... Uh, West coast of India, Gujarat, near what is now Pakistan, uh, the Pandavas, the five brothers at different times go down to the south, well, the two of the brothers, so, um, some of the brothers, they go down to the south of India, so it's really almost like this pan-South Asian epic. So, it, it, but it's centered uh, here, very close to what is now Delhi. What is now, what is now actually Delhi was Indraprastha, which for some time was the capital of the Pandavas. Anyway. So, uh, so in that sense, it's really the, the great Indian epic. It's Mahabharata, great Bharata. <coughs> and also, it, it's, regardless of when it was composed, the events that are described in it are much more recent than the Ramayana. You may remember the Ramayana is Treta Yuga, the Four Yugas, the Four Great Ages. This is taking place at the very end of Dwapar Yuga. The, um, there are four ages. And the, uh, this is the Ramayana here. This is the Satyuga Age of Truth. Then you have the third age, which is called Vapara. And then Kali, our benighted uh, age. So, these events of Mahabharata, according to... Can you all see this? Take place right here. In fact, at the very end of the Mahabharata, Krishna leaves this world. And, and one very common, powerful theme in this tradition is at the very moment that Krishna left the world, the Dwapara Yuga ended. That Krishna is leaving the earth and going back to his own spiritual place. The moment Krishna left the earth, that was the end of the Dwapara age, and the, and the age of Kali began. So Krishna's leaving ushers in, in a sense, this fallen age. So in that sense, because of the geography, because of the more recent time, uh, and because of the nature of the text itself, this text really is the great epic. So if you just say the great epic, it means the Mahabharata. 
And that's why there was a keen interest among people that study these things to figure out, well, where did it come from? And, and what's the text history? Can we find an original text? Any questions on that stuff so far? Yes. I'm just curious about the name. Is that a lineage of kings who were called Bharata? Yes, in fact, yeah, it is. In fact, the Kurus, the main dynasty, the Pandavas, they're also called Bharatas because they're also connected to this lineage. So in that sense, it's a great story of this of this uh, imperial dynasty. Any other questions on that? No? We'll move into the mess. Now, when scholars tried to figure out the phrase the history of the manuscript tradition of the Mahabharata, it became a problem. And I, I read that one quote from Bette Butenin that uh, clearly not a single author and a single date can be assigned to the great epic. So here's a quote from, again, the Prolegomena, the introduction to the critical Sanskrit edition of the text. The critical apparatus. Critical apparatus means it's all the manuscripts sorted out and, or, and collated, all the manuscripts they have available, which they analyze to try to figure out what the oldest one is. So having all those manuscripts in place, with the various notes on them, that's called the critical apparatus. And by the way, this is good, I mean, to know this kind of stuff, because oftentimes in, in undergraduate classes, you get kind of this very nice shrink-wrapped picture of things. Like this book came from this age, and it was done this way, and this happened, and that happened. But actually, when I went to graduate school, the first thing I found is that that nice little clean picture I got as an undergraduate, it all like collapsed almost immediately. And uh, it was much more complex. So in a sense, we're taking you behind the scenes, you know, it's like Universal Studios tour. Take you behind the scenes and see how they create all those really cool academic effects and uh, where they're really coming from. So I hope I'm not corrupting you as undergraduates. Anyway, so here's a quote from Vishnu Sutankar who headed this project. He was in charge of this project. He said, the critical apparatus is a veritable labyrinth, labyrinth complicated and intermingled versions, each with a long and intricate history of its own behind it. Remember I said there's 58 versions which fall into 11 different categories, and he said this is a labyrinth. We have, unfortunately, no single thread to guide us out of the maze. You know, you're in the maze, and you forgot to, you know, you know leave a little thread behind you. There's no thread but rather a collection of strands intertwined and entangled and leading along divergent paths. All the difficulties in the explanation of this phenomenal variation vanish, however, as soon as we assume that the epic was handed down from bard to bard originally by word of mouth as clearly implied by the tradition. That's what the book itself says. So, and Van Buten also says uh, it, was, it, it was an oral tr transmission. So let's talk about oral transmissions. And this is something which is true anywhere in the world. I mean, you can take anthropology courses and this. There still are oral traditions in certain parts of the world, even in certain parts of America. Christmas comes, but I guess twice a year. So the nature of oral traditions that aren't written down. <laughs> yes? Twice, three times. Yeah. So, and this is true whether you're studying oral traditions in Polynesia, in ancient India, Europe, 
anywhere in the world, Native American people, anywhere you study it, there are certain characteristics of oral traditions. One thing is they're very fluid. If you have a book written down, like say Homer's Iliad, it's like that's it, it's written down. You can't just say it's something else because everyone has a copy of it. It's in the library. But when it's not written down, uh, texts are much more fluid. They're much more volatile. They can change. Because after all, you know, you remember it this way, I remember it that way. And one thing that Eugene says, there was no pressure to memorize every exact word as with the Rig Veda. I mentioned this early on with, with the Vedas. It was the actual sound that had the power. Here, the power is the story. There's no business like show business. So, so let's say you were a sutta, an ancient sutta, an ancient reciter, a bard, and you're traveling around some region of India, and at night after everyone's completed their work, these are agricultural villages for the most part, some little towns, and people gather under the stars because a Mahabharata reciter has come to town. And it's a big thing. After all, no movie theaters, no YouTube, no DVDs. I mean, this is it. This is the movies, and this is, I mean, this is it. This is home entertainment. This is the big screen. A Mahabharata reciter comes along. There's all kinds of things that can happen. For example, let's say you happen to be in Southeast India, the Chola Kingdom, and the king, as happened at one particular point in time, was a fanatical follower of Shiva, and actually persecuted, which is somewhat unusual in Indian history, but it happened very occasionally, persecuted people of other religions. So now, if you want to recite in that kingdom, and let's say you live there, or your family's there, or you're just, things are going well there, you'd better come up with, very quickly with a chapter of glorifying Shiva. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't come up with it, basically, you're history, you're out of there. So you come up with, a, you come up with these chapters of glorifying Shiva. Or let's say you're reciting somewhere under the stars, I mean, just picture yourself out, you know, Thousands of years before the Industrial Revolution. You're out somewhere in some village, people come, they want to hear these great stories, and you tell one story and people love it. People absolutely love it. And so they say, can you tell that story again tomorrow night? So you do. You tell it again because people want to hear it again. And they say, aren't there more details about it? Like, don't you know more about that story? Because that really fascinates us. So we can find a, there's always a history how should I put it? Okay, English. There's a long tradition, there's a long tradition in Indian culture and other cultures for that matter of uh, filling in details, sort of like impromptu historical novels where you keep the basic outlines, you keep the basic structure, but you fill in some details. You just sort of think through it. Well, let's say, for example, that Shantanu, the great head of the Kuru dynasty, he lost his first wife, and then he began wandering through the forest, and he ended up hundreds of miles away from his imperial capital. And he meets this beautiful girl. And this beautiful girl actually once had a relationship, such uh, a tea with Parashara, but he's gone. And so here are two people who both lost someone they love. Now, the story doesn't go into all the details necessarily of that, but yeah, of course. So you, maybe you want to talk about it, because maybe you've got some romantic people in the audience. And so you can see how it starts to grow and it starts to expand because it's entertainment, it's the movies, it's Broadway, it's everything in ancient India. And you have to include things based on the preferences of, of, of your patron. Now there's another problem. There are, India's a very big place. It was a very complex, diverse culture. 
and people have different moral attitudes. For example, southern South India, which uh, is much more geographically protected from foreign influence, uh, tended to be more conservative. It's like it's the uh, it's kind of like the the Veda belt in some places, or the buckle on the Veda belt. So. Whereas northern India always had contact with other cultures. There were invasions and all kinds of things going on. So there was a certain conservatism. The Indian South, in some ways, is like the American South, more conservative, more traditional religion. So in northern India, you have this story where the great sage Parashuramuni is wandering through the woods, and he wants to cross a river. And there's this beautiful young girl, the one I just mentioned, who rows a ferry back and forth across the river to make a little extra income for her parents who live in a fishing village. And that's the, the famous Sachivati, this beautiful young girl. So uh, they're in the boat, and the, the North Indian version just says, Sachikam Atam, he desired her. And so he said, basically, uh, and he's this great, powerful sage, let's just do it. And she says, yeah, right, like in public, hello. So then, what he does is, he says, we, he, they go on to this island, an island of Sanskrit is Dweepa, and then he just creates this fog. He's this powerful yogi, this powerful sage. He creates this fog, covers the island, shrouds the island in fog, and then gives her a child, and again makes her a virgin. And, and then it turns her back into a virgin. Now, the, the child that's born is Vyasa. It's, it's the great Vyasa, who's considered the literary incarnation of God, an avatar. And great and, and Vyas, really, this birth of Vyas is a very dramatic moment. It sort of starts the La Reconquista. It, it, it starts the counter-attack against uh, this alien invasion of the Earth. We're going to talk about all this. It's actually a very interesting story. There's a lot more in the story. I should admit that I've kind of studied the Mahabharata. I've actually translated myself and published about uh, 300 chapters in the Mahabharata. And uh, I'm still working on it, so... I. So anyway, I have some special information about it. But going back to this, anyway, in South India, in South India, it was like, whoa, don't, we don't want to hear that uh, an incarnation of God was born out of wedlock. <coughs> because Parashara and Satyavati, without real formalities, they just, in fact, Vyasa is called, uh, the, word, the Sanskrit word for island is Dvipa, and therefore... Uh, the real name of Vyasa, Vyasa is kind of like his title, like the editor, is Dwaipayana. His name is actually Dwaipayana because he's born on an island, a Dweepa. So anyway, in South India, this very conservative data belt, uh, that's, that was not okay that Vyasa was born out of wedlock, even though it was a great sage and a princess and all that, and it was really kind of spiritual anyway. And so if you look at the South Indian recensions, and there's a South Indian, the manuscripts is kind of like South Indian versions and North Indian versions. In the South Indian version, they get married first. <laughs> and, and there's a great... And one thing about these literatures, which is I find fascinating, there really is a cosmic village. There's a cosmic village. If you think of the sociology of villages, people know each other. There are great sages, great kings, great gods, goddesses, even celestial bad guys. And they all know each other. And so you get these great occasions, a sacrifice, a Mahayagya, a great sacrifice, or a great wedding, or someone passes away, and the whole cosmic village shows up. So there's a sense. 
Yeah, it really is a cosmic village. So anyway, the whole cosmic village comes, you know, they send out these really cruel invitations. The whole cosmic village comes, and Satyavati is married to Parashamuni, and then they have their child, yes. That shows you the cultural differences between North and South India, in one sense. There's all kinds of differences. So now you take all these manuscripts, you're trying to figure out where does it all come from. Is there an original manuscript? And that's the purpose of... So text critical. Text critical issues means you look at a text and you try to figure out, is this a corrupt text? Is it pure? Where does it come from? Like if you had, let's say, a copy of, of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, it's probably what he really wrote because it's so recent. But when you look at ancient texts, it's not so obvious. They didn't have printing presses. Things were written out by hand. That's why the printing press changed world history. Because previously, unless you were rich, or unless you were like a monk or something, you didn't have direct access to scriptures. It was considered scandalous to translate the Bible into vernacular languages, because then everybody can read it. And this kind of broke up the priestly monopoly. So, the same thing in India. You had to be rich to have a manuscript. It cost a lot of money. If you wanted the Mahabharata copied, my God, you had to be a king, or a prince, or, you know, maybe the leader of a very important religious institution. You had to really have mega rupees. Well, they didn't have rupees back then, but you had to really be in a very important position to get, to get a Mahabharata copied. So it was an oral tradition. It finally got written down. So anyway, so it's a labyrinth. Now, Van Boyne Buten says, one cannot expect that this oral transmission of Mahabharata was a literal one, as in the case of the Veda. I already explained that. And now he kind of says what I said. Uh, he didn't get it from me, because he actually is much older than me. The reciter's reputation was based on his skill in bringing the old stories to life again. Successive generations would add, embellish, digress, but also understate what might have been emphasized before. So I explained that. Now there's another issue, which is uh, <coughs> marginalia, meaning stuff in the margin. Because when they're copying these things, sometimes the, the scribes would say, hey, what's that? Or this looks funny. Or they would write like a little sort of on-the-spot explanation of what a word might mean, or is it this or that. And then a couple hundred years later, someone would look at that and think, maybe, well, maybe that's part of the original text. Or they would just include it. So in general, in India, in Indian culture, the tendency, going way back, has been inclusive rather than exclusive. When in doubt, just include it. Buddha gets included as, as an avatar of Vishnu, and, and as an example. So if you look at the history of the manuscripts, because there's all these different oral traditions, and you get all these different written traditions, and people start comparing them and saying, well, let's just put it all in, because it's all ancient, it's all good, and let's just put it all in there. And so, very early on, they get this attitude like the Mahabharata, let's just make, as Nilakanda. Nilakanta is one of the most famous commentators of Mahabharata from several hundred years ago. And Nilakanta says that I want to make a veritable, as he put it, a thesaurus of excellences. In other words, let's put all the different versions in and make it just like the Mahabharata fest. So that people can see all these different, really great versions of the story. So some stories in Mahabharata, there's four or five different versions of the same story scattered throughout the text. So the ancients appear to have favored inclusive rather than exclusive texts. I already read all that. Then there's, it, it's kind of ironic. There's one text called the Sharada manuscript because there's an ancient script from Kashmir called Sharada. And that one appears to be as one scholar, uh, as Sutankar said, 
This version appears to have been protected by its largely unintelligible script. It was written in a script that only people in a, way up north in Kashmir could read. And by the difficulties of access to the province. And besides this, all the other versions are indiscriminately and conflated. The problem is the Sharda manuscript is very partial, it's just fragments. So don't get your hopes up there. Now, so Sutantra concluded it is extremely difficult, if not utterly impossible, to disentangle completely by means of purely objective criteria all these manuscripts. We did, so and then he, he concludes, he actually ends his introduction by saying, prolegomena, to prevent misconception in the mind of the casual reader, it is best to state at first what, what the constituted text is not. Constituted text means a critical edition. This is what it's not. The editor himself is firmly convinced that the text presented in this edition is not anything like the autographed copy of the work of its mythical author, Maharshi, great sage, Vyasa. It is not, in any sense, a reconstruction of the Ur original, Mahabharata, or the Urbharata, which is a preliminary version. That the Mahabharata mentions an earlier version, just called Bharata. So it's not that either. It's not Bharata, it's not Mahabharata. That ideal but impossible desideratum. That means something you want. It is also not an exact replica of the poem recited by Vaishampayana. Whoops, oh, there it is, still there. Uh, before Janamejaya, so it's not that either. It is but a modest attempt to present a version of the epic as old as the existing manuscript material will permit us to reach with some semblance of confidence. Now, there's something very interesting about this, and that is we have an, an Indian scholar who said basically the same thing. Well, at least he made the same criticism of the Mahabharata, the text, 800 years well, it's 800 years, and no, this is 1933, 700 years before this was written. Seven in, in, in the 1200s, a very famous Indian Acharya teacher named Madhvacharya, Madhvacharya from uh, Southwest India, from Karnataka, Udupi, wrote a book on the Mahabharata called the Mahabharata Tatparya Nirnaya, which means ascertaining what the Mahabharata means. And in this book, written in the 1200s, he said the same thing from the manuscripts he had available to him. So I'm going to read you some of what he said. Uh, it's very interesting because it's so modern. He made very, very modern statements. He basically said the same thing. So here's an example. I'll, I'll read you quickly the Sanskrit so you can just, you know, amuse yourself with that. Kvachit grantan prakshipanti kvachitantaritanapi kuryu kvachitsyasyam pramada kvachitanyata. He said that if you study the man these books of the Mahabharata, in some places, people have interpolated. They've stuck things into the text. And in other places, they've taken things out. Extrapolations. Interpolations. In certain places, uh, there are transpositions of text. They get things out of order. They change the sequence. Uh, and he said, this is done pramadat. By negligence, by carelessness, by mistakes of scribes. So this is a very academic thing. Interpolations, extrapolations, transpositions of text done by negligence, carelessness of scribes. This is written, frankly, before Europeans ever went to India. This is written by Madhvacharya. 
And then he says, Anutsanabi Gantha Vyapulaiti Sarvas. And so, so he said, basically, the whole text, throughout the text, it's actually the text has been disturbed or messed up throughout it, throughout the text. And he said, it's mostly altered. Now, he's going to try to figure it out. He's not going to use these same text critical methods. He's not a Western scholar or Western type scholar. He is, he's actually one of the great Acharya spiritual teachers of Indian history. And he's going to try to get the mercy of God through meditation, through realization, to understand what really happened. So he's one of the great Vaishnava Acharyas. He's a devotee of Krishna. And uh, he's practically, the, he's one of the most important religious leaders of Southwest India. Uh, so, anyway, interestingly, he said the same thing that the Western scholars said, and the Western type scholars said. Any question on those points so far? No? So, he didn't write a new manuscript of the Mahabharata. He just um, he just wrote a book about it and gave his opinion about what's really important and what the real point of it is and all that. So now I want to put on the board. Uh, the Mahabharata actually goes on at three different levels. It goes on. It, 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 it's functioning at three different levels. You can see this very, very, very clearly. Uh, the first level is you can just say, uh, I'll do it in English, uh, earthly history. Um, okay. Early history. It's a story of a great dynastic struggle. Uh, the way some scholars put it for the you know, Jamuna, Ganges, Valley, this most important part of India or central part of India. So it's a dynastic struggle, the Kurus and the Pandavas. It's an earthly history. At the second level, it's a cosmic struggle. It's a cosmic struggle because the main characters in the book are actually not earthlings. They're actually coming from different planets. The Earth is actually being used as a battleground, as a, as a cosmic battleground. And I'm going to talk about that. Uh, Van Butenen wrote something about this. He doesn't like that. He actually got a little bummed out by that. Because he's, I guess, a humanist. And so this is what he said about this cosmic dimension, which I find thrilling. I mean, this is better than Men in Black or Star Wars, when you really understand it. So we're going to be talking about that. This is what Van Butenen says, and I... I understand where he's coming from, and I agree with him in certain details, but overall I think he totally missed the point. He says, the human-divine connections, quote, are disappointing, disappointing that there's human-divine connections, because they rob the human actors of much of their motivation. He's talking about a fact that Bhishma, one of the great characters, Pitamaha Bhishma, was cursed, and therefore because of his curse, he had to act in a certain way, and so... It's like more fun if he just did it out of his own character, not because some curse is forcing him. So, I mean, to some extent, the shop is the curses, which in Sanskrit is shop, shop, and it's kind of like shop till you drop. It's, I mean, there, there's a lot of shops going on, a lot of shopping. So, it, it does get a little too much in some of the corrupted versions. But he, Van Butten, I think, goes too far and kind of doesn't like the whole divine human connection. He says... Still, disconcerting as it is, the rather decadent sanctification by mythology, now there's a great little turn of words, the rather decadent sanctification by mythology of persons standing in no need of saintliness went on and found its inane perfection, its inane perfection, which is subtly pejorative, 
It found its inane perfection in, quote, the book of the partial incarnations, where every human bad or good is the reappearance of demon and god. This decaying mythology with which the reader is so needlessly pre presented has a way of subtracting from the meaning. So this uh, decadent, decaying, inane, inanely perfect, uh, what he's talking about is one of the sub-books. The Mahabharata is divided into 18 major books called Parvas. And, uh, okay, go into my sprint here. And it's, um, there are sub-books. And so one of them is called the Amshavatara. Uh, parva. Avatar, you know, means like descent of the divine being. Unction means like partial to a part. Basically, what this means is that um, all the main figures in the Mahabharata were actually incarnations or partial incarnations or descent of great celestial beings. And so the Maha and uh, very quickly there was a cosmic battle between the gods and their opponents, the asuras. And the gods won because at the last minute, when they weren't doing well, Vishnu came in, sort of like a designated hitter. Vishnu came onto the field, and with Vishnu's appearance, the gods won. So therefore, the, the demons uh, had their guru, Shukracharya, which in English means Professor White. So Professor White had this power to bring his clients, the demons, he was their guru, bring them back to life if their bodies had not been destroyed. He had this power called Sanjeevani. So therefore, he actually brought them back to life. And they devised this sophisticated strategy to take over the universe by first taking over some out-of-the-way planet and transforming it, so to speak, into a Death Star. You know your Star Wars. I assume you're all... How could you get into UF if you don't know Star Wars? So they wanted to make the Earth into a Death Star. And they actually wanted to manipulate the laws of Dharma. It, it's almost like the Mafia where they sort of, you know sort of skirt legality and illegality to have legitimate front organizations. So they actually took birth as earthly kings so that because the gods, it, it's like the idea is the universe really operates under law and order. So even if you're a god or even if you're a god, you can't really bust someone if they haven't broken the law. And so by taking birth on earth as a king, you have certain powers and certain rights. They also took birth as wild animals. These are things which you don't find in the textbook, but I mean, they're in the Mahabharata. They're actually there, sometimes hidden away in remote parts of the Mahabharata, but it's all there. They took birth as wild animals so they could attack the shamanas, the forest sages, and kill them, but because that's Pashudharma. Wild animals can attack humans. Anyway, so we have this whole sophisticated strategy to actually take over the earth. And what happened is the earth goddess, Bhumi, uh, realizing that there had been a type of alien invasion went to Brahma, the creator, and said, this is out of my league. Brahma then went and prayed to Vishnu, and Vishnu then declared that he was going to descend personally to the earth, and that he was going to personally fix everything. And so that fixing everything, that great battle that took place, and there were different views on the power of God, like even if Vishnu is God, what can he really do? I mean, it said even Thomas Jefferson was accused of being a deist, thinking that God sets the world in order, but then can't intervene. There are many scientists that believe in God, but believe that God cannot or will not intervene in human history. So even taking Vishnu to be in some way God, it was not clear what the outcome would be. So anyway, that's really the Mahabharata, this great cosmic story. Whoops. And then number three, the ultimate level it goes on at, or functions on, level functions on, yeah, is spiritual, because then the Mahabharata is the Bhagavad Gita. And so ultimately, the whole Mahabharata ultimately is meant to bring one out of the universe 
to a spiritual platform beyond the universe. So it's an earthly struggle, it's a cosmic battle, and ultimately it's meant to bring you beyond the universe to the spiritual platform. So then, uh, today's Wednesday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Friday we'll talk about the actual story, what, the, what actually happened. So, bye-bye. Thank you.